0: Revelation 4, we're actually going to be looking at chapters 4 and 5 this morning. I was drawn to these two particular chapters just because of what John sees here. But by way of introduction, and I know perhaps you've heard me say this in various settings before, but I truly believe that Revelation stands out from all of the other books of the Bible as the most misunderstood book in all of Scripture. You know, if you're doing, uh, uh, we don't have to do this, but if you're doing like high school superlatives, like in your high school yearbook, if you're to do those same sorts of things for the Bible, this one would win Most Misunderstood. It's always the book of the Bible that is commonly uh, geared towards a specific setting. Perhaps you only think of Revelation and and your mind immediately goes to prophecy conferences or seminars on how to navigate and understand the end times and all of those sorts of things. Revelation often is regarded as a book of prediction. uh, A book which predicts how the future will unfold. Here are all the events. Here's what you need to know. Here's how you can know when the end times is going to come about. Which... Has led to pastors and preachers throughout the history of the church making all kinds of crazy predictions about the end times, about this book specifically, all these forecasts about the future. If you just, a fun study is go on Wikipedia and look some of these things up, and you can see how many times the end times have been predicted by pastors and pulpits. 88 reasons why God is going to come back in 1988, which didn't turn out so accurate (laughs) but regardless revelation is often used for that purpose how can we know when these things are going to happen? And I think that to me is one of the most mind boggling things about the book of Revelation is specifically the fact that it is often a book which ha- causes so much division, so much frustration because we all come to this book and we find our own interpretations. We find our own meanings behind all the symbols that John employs. And indeed, I think that's one of the tragic ironies of all ironies is that churches would split and divide and fracture over ways to understand Revelation. Especially when you, under, when you understand that Revelation primarily, yes, it has uh, apocalyptic literature, but primarily it's a letter. Revelation is a letter to churches. Go with me a couple pages back to chapter 1 and just notice how this, how this book begins. Because this is so important, I think, to keep in mind what John states right here at the beginning of this book for the rest of the book. This is sort of the, the way in which I think we're supposed to understand all of these 22 chapters of extraordinary events. We understand it like this, Revelation 1.1, 1, 1, the revelation of Jesus Christ. See, John is writing this as a way to encourage believers. Not to stress them out. Not to make them frantic. Not to make them wring their hands and saying, look at all the things that are happening. He's writing so you might be blessed by knowing the things that will soon take place. but by, by most of all, I would say, by knowing who is the one who has put those things into place in the first place. You see, I think... What I think John here hints at is just the fact that the blessing of Revelation doesn't, and I would say, is not limited to future insights. Yes, 1,000%. Revelation tells us of the things that will be. That's exactly what this book talks about a lot. But that does not mean that reading Revelation makes us forecasters of future events and that we can say definitively, here's how things will turn out. And I would say confining only this, this book to only that category does a disservice to what John here, and I would say John, under the power and inspiration of the Holy Spirit, uh, aims to do. Continually, look at verse 4 of the same first chapter. John, notice, to the seven churches that are in Asia. Grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come and from the seven spirits who are before his throne and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead and the ruler of the kings of the earth. To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom priest to his God and father to him be glory and dominion and forever and ever behold, he is coming with the clouds. And every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all the tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Even so, amen. You see, John is introducing this book, of course, which is going to get into a lot of future events, events which still haven't taken place even on our own days, and it does relay those things, but it's a book of comfort, and it's meant to comfort these who are in the church by giving them the assurance that throughout all of these days of disaster, what holds true? It holds true that he who was and is and is to come is the only Lord of glory. That's what he's doing. He's showing them again, revealing Christ to the churches. Revelation shouldn't make us stressed about where we are or where we might be on the end times timeline. And I'm sure you've heard that conversation a couple of times over the last couple of years. Because there's things that make you go, whoa, could this be? Maybe. Maybe. But Jesus gives us a lot of clues throughout the the New Testament. We don't have to go there, but uh, Mark 13 is a good one. Acts chapter 1 is a good one, where he says, it's not for you to know. It is for you to look, to watch, and to pray. Now, say John here is giving them another instance of that. To watch and pray. Knowing that these things will take place, but most of all, to watch and pray Knowing that there is one who is assuring us that all these things will take place according to his timing. Revelation, I would say, very clearly is a book that ought to make us faithful. As he says here in this book, blessed are you for the time is near. that ought to make us faithful knowing that there is one who has ordained all of these things from before the foundation of the world. I say all that to say this also too. That's not to say we can't have our interpretations of Revelation. It's just to say, as I've often said, we're all going to find out at the same time if those are true. (laughs) So we can hold to them, we can believe them, but we're going to find out at the same time if those things are actually accurate. Just that. But I say all that to say this because I want to introduce this vision that John has in chapters 4 and 5 by, again, noticing how it takes place with this first vision in chapter 1. Because he introduces all of these events which surround this immaculate book of all these visions of future events and future uh, take, uh, happenings and occurrences. And if you remember in chapter 1 verse 9, all the way down through the end of that first chapter, John has this, this vision, he hears this voice. And he begins writing to the seven churches as he was ordained to by this voice and then suddenly he turns and he sees, uh, tries to see the figure from whom this voice is coming from and he sees this amazing dazzling vision of the Lord Jesus Christ himself, the son of man in his full glory. And in fact, it's such a blinding and such a terrific image of who Jesus is, is that John just falls to the ground, as it says in verse 17, as though he was dead. Notice verse 17. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. (laughs) And then that's when something amazing happened. Because he's falling prostrate on his face at such a blinding image of the glory of Christ himself. And this is when that same Christ kneels down, bends down, and touches him. Notice, but he laid his right hand on me saying, notice these words, fear not. I am the first and the last. And the living one I died and behold I'm alive forevermore and I have the keys of death and Hades in my hands Jesus says I am that powerful I am that sovereign I am that omnipotent over all these things therefore you can fear not words of comfort John receives. From this brilliant image of who Christ is in his full garment of glory. And it's with that scene in mind that we are able to make sense of chapter 4. Because if you notice, over in chapter 4, notice how it begins this particular vision, those first couple words. After this, I looked. So after this image, this vision, this incredible display of Christ's glory, he sees something else, which goes at verse 19 of chapter 1, where it says, Write the things that you have seen. So what are some of the things that John saw? What are some of the things that John, in this amazing invitation to see into glory, what are some of the things that he notices, which I think... It's a question worth pausing to consider. Because when you walk into a room, your eyes are immediately drawn to something. You know, this is, I was looking this up. I'm not an interior designer. I don't pretend to be. But I find out that, unknowns to me, there are seven principles of interior design. And number six on the supposed principles of interior design is emphasis. What is a room's emphasis? What is its focal point? Where, when you walk into a room, where's the eye drawn to first? A fireplace, a piece of art perhaps, uh, an incredible couch, maybe it's a giant TV. Something, whether you know it or not, maybe you didn't even plan for it, but maybe you've never even thought about it before, but something is getting the emphasis in your living room. And when you usher people in, they're noticing something first. (laughs) And I think that leads me to ask... (laughs) As he says here, he sees a door standing open in heaven. What is heaven's emphasis? When he walks through it, what is he first drawn to? What is John's first, uh, what is his gaze first uh, laying, laying uh, his eyes laying on? Where is his gaze being drawn to? And I would say, most notably, it's not a big map. Which outlines how all of the events of history will come to pass. I would like that. That would be nice. It's not a big giant bulletin board with red string that connects all the dots of history to say, look at God's providence. That would be nice too. Instead, his eyes are drawn to two very specific, very powerful, and very predominant things that totally captivate and capture all of his senses, all of his vision. Everything that he sees is surrounding these two things. Which is what I want to talk about this morning. Because the first thing that he sees, mostly through chapter 4, is an occupied throne. A throne that is occupied. Notice again chapter 4 verse 1. After this I looked and behold a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice which I had heard speaking to me like a trumpet said come up here and I will show you what must take place after this. At once I was in the spirit and behold a throne stood in heaven. He hears the voice, the same voice from chapter 1, verse 10, comes and speaks to him, which of course is the voice of the Lord Jesus himself. And he ushers John in through this door, a door to heaven in this vision. He's ushered into this immaculate throne room, a throne room that is filled With glory, filled with majesty everywhere he looked. He was noticing something that was displaying and radiating with the glory of God as he says... And he who sat there had the appearance, verse 3, of Jasper and Carnelian. And around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. And around the throne were 24 thrones. And seated on the thrones were 24 elders clothed in white garments with golden crowns on their heads. And on he goes, the sea of glass, the golden crowns, the elders shouting and praising. Everything is surrounding this throne. All of these angelic beings, these living creatures... It's important to note here especially as John describes these creatures that are surrounding the throne praising the Lord God Almighty that this is an interpretation that John is giving of heaven. And one of the things that is particularly important to note throughout Revelation, one of the things which makes it somewhat of a frustrating book to understand is that much of its writing is symbolical or figurative. He's writing about what he saw of heaven's glory, which, as you might be well aware, human language is not particularly adept at describing something heavenly. John is using the best words he knows how to try and get into your mind's eye what it was like to see that room, to see that glory. Such is why throughout this chapter, but even in chapters that follow, you'll notice that John often uses that phrase, had the appearance of, it looked like this. This is the best way I know to capture what this looked like. And what he saw as he first came into that room was a throne, a magnificent throne. And in fact, throughout all of chapter 4, throne is mentioned in 11 verses 14 times. It, of course, is the very emphasis of this room. And each time it is meant to refer to or suggest a seat of dominance, a seat of authority, a seat of power. And you can see here quite clearly that John, as he goes through that door and he's in heaven now, in this throne room of heaven, he's being given a glorious sight, a glimpse of the very seat from which all of heaven and earth is governed. That's what he's seeing. Men may sit themselves down on thrones, kings and presidents and potentates and rulers all across this globe will sit themselves down on thrones of their own making. But the amazing fact of what John here declares is that there is only truly one throne by which all of this life is ordered and orchestrated and comes to pass. And it's this throne right here, heaven's throne, God's throne. This is where all things are first ordered and laid down. And the sight of this throne just enthralls John. He sees as he, again notice verse 3. And he who sat there had the appearance of Jasper and cornelian, And around the throne was a rainbow. This shooting green beam of light. And before it, as he says in verse 6, was like a sea of glass. And before it were torches burning with fire. He's enthralled by this. And rightly so, but even more than that, he's enthralled, as he says there in verses 2 and 3, by the one on the throne. Again, notice verse 2. At once I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne stood in heaven with one seated on the throne. That place from which all things are being ordained and orchestrated, by which all things are coming to pass and being brought into our lives that seat is not vacant it's not empty there's one seated upon it and this one is the true one the just one the lord god almighty as it says in verse 8 this is el shaddai the the covenant name of god first given to abraham the one who is and was and is to come as it says there in verse 8 The 24 elders fall down before him who is seated on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. And they cast their crowns before the throne saying, worthy are you, O Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things and by your will they existed and were created. This is the one who is seated there in glory. He's always been seated there. He's always been ruling there. This is God the Father, the Lord God Almighty, the one who spoke and everything came into being. The one who perfectly orchestrates all things according to his divine wisdom, according to his divine will. He's the one who is sitting there. In ageless dominion, his rule is forever and ever, as John repeats a couple of times. He is ruling, and his rule never comes to an end. And when he rules from that throne, it sounds like rumblings, as he says in verse 5, and peals of thunder. Notice as he says in verse number 5, from the throne came flashes of lightning. And rumblings and peals of thunder. This is what gets to the heart of how authoritative and how omnipotent the words are which come from this one who is seated on the throne. When he rules and he says something, it is binding. It is a decree that cannot be questioned. Because he is God. He is creator. He is Lord of all. He is El Shaddai. He is Yahweh. He is the one who spoke And still speaks and sustains everything according to his authority. There's no questioning what comes from this throne. There's no disputing what comes from this throne. Every aspect of this throne room scene, I think, is geared towards bringing our attention and focusing our attention on this one, the one who is seated on the throne. He's getting all of it by those who are there. And we ought to likewise give him all the attention too. And, and it's, it's interesting to me how many commentators uh, give their perspective on who these 24 elders might be. Or who the four living creatures might be. And there's lots of different theories. You know, they're representing the 12 tribes of Israel. Or the 12 apostles or the four gospels and so on and so forth. Perhaps John doesn't tell us. I wish he would have... Their strange appearances grab our attention. One who has a head like an eagle in flight. What does that look like? I'm not sure. But without digressing on all those details, I think the point that John is trying to get into our mind's eye, that everything in heaven, every being, every creature, everything that is there is preoccupied with one thing. They are preoccupied with the one who is on the throne. They are surrounding that throne, worshiping that throne, knowing that the one who is seated there is the one by whom they have their entire being. They're giving him all honor. They're giving him all praise. They're giving him all worship. They're giving him all glory. Raising this never-ceasing anthem of holy, holy, holy to this one who is seated on the throne. What a sight. A sight that John meant for us, I think, too. Because I think in many ways, the same should be said for you and I. Not that we have to cloister ourselves away and live our lives 24-7, saying and chanting, holy, holy, holy. But there is, yes, there is a point in which this whole entire chapter tells us what it looks like to live the life of faith. Such that we have nothing apart from this one who is on the throne. You and I here this morning, if you believe in Jesus Christ as your Savior, you live a life that is derived from the authority of this one on the throne. Such is why Jesus, when he comes in the in the Gospels, comes declaring, "I come preaching a kingdom," because you belong to a king. You belong to someone who sits on the throne. And it's not just someone who is unknowable. He is someone who has made himself known to you and to me. Living a life of faith in the here and now means living a life of confidence in a throne that is occupied. is not vacant. It's not empty. It has never been at one single instance. That's the confidence that we can have as those who believe in the Lord of all things. And from that throne, we likewise believe that he's ruling perfectly. He's doing all things well. And the only only thing this leaves us to do is to do exactly as the creatures and angels here do in this throne room right here in heaven. Which is just to fall down and worship him. This, I think, gets to the heart what is so often expounded throughout the New Testament that our lives are to be lived in a constant state of worship and prayer and praise. This is not a 24-7 worship but it is a heart of worship. We worship the Lord as as Jesus says in John chapter 4 in spirit and in truth. This morning if you have a faith that is weak A faith that feels as though it's running on fumes. A faith that feels as though it is nearing empty. My friends, look to this throne. This is from where all of your encouragement and your confidence and yes, all of your clarity and hope lies. We live lives Of faith, knowing that there is a throne in glory that is filled. But notice, secondly, as we transition to chapter 5, the other thing that John sees. He sees a throne that is filled, but he also sees something else. Because chapter 5 begins sort of a new vision, yes. But it is a vision that is very much part and parcel with the one that went before it. It's much of the same. There's much of the same scene happening. The same participants and the same elements. But a couple of new things are revealed. Notice chapter 5 verse 1. Then I saw uh, in the right hand, uh, hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or look into it. So John sees, yes, there's one on the throne and he is captivated by it. But he glances and he notices that this one on the throne is gripping a scroll, a book. And in fact, throughout this chapter, that same scroll is mentioned some eight times. And it's meant to suggest this written volume, this written book of the God Almighty. That he has in his hands, which yes indeed is symbolic of all of his intentions and ordinances with this creation that he has spoken into being. All that God has promised, all that God will orchestrate from the beginning of time is set forth in that scroll. And yet, as John here reveals, despair sets in. Because a mighty angel stands up and says, who is worthy to open this scroll? Essentially, what he's asking for is who is worthy enough, who is capable enough of bringing all of these ordinances into reality? Who is able to accomplish all of the things in the Word? That's the question who is able to bring it to pass? And despair sets in because John suddenly realizes that no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth, and essentially no living creature, no being at all, is worthy, capable of opening that book and bringing those words to pass. No one has that type of authority. No one has that type of ability to accomplish all of its ends, all of its purposes. So John begins to weep. Knowing that these things will forever remain a divine mystery. No one is able to discern these depths of God's wisdom except for God alone. And this is when an angel comes up beside John in his vision. As he's weeping, notice. And one of the elders said to me, weep no more behold the lion of the tribe of judah the root of david has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals an incredible dose of good news overwhelms john here as this angel comes up beside him and says there is one who can open the scroll and bring all of its words to pass you need not weep john The one on the throne has made perfect provision to carry out every single one of his divine decrees by offering this one who can open his book and bring all of those things to pass, accomplish all of its purposes. And that one, as he says, is none other than the Lion of the tribe of Judah. The Root of David himself. Which, of course, are glorious, matchless titles for the Lord Jesus Christ. Those are things that he has accomplished. As it says there, he has conquered. This angel is referring to the Lord Jesus. Saying that he has already done everything necessary to bring about this word. He has conquered. Therefore he can open the seals. He can open the book and look into it. And bring everything to pass. I think of John 16. In verse 33. Where Christ says to his apostles. I have said these things to you. That in me you may have peace. In the world you have tribulation. But take heart. I have overcome the world. It's the same word by the way. Conquered and overcome. Jesus is Giving his apostles a clue. Even hours before the cross. He is saying I have already conquered. It's already as good as done. And even in your midst. I'm bringing the decrees of the one who is on the throne into reality. I'm making them true. I have overcome. I have conquered. Which guarantees that he is able to bring all of these things to pass. Every purpose of the one who is on the throne. Every promise of the one who is on the throne is in the Lord Jesus Christ, as it says in Second Corinthians, yes, and amen. He's the one who seals all of these things into being reality. As he himself says about himself in Revelation chapter 3, he is the faithful and true witness through whom all of these things come into being. What a sight. As John gets this vision of the throne and he sees there and he's invited to see this book that is about to be opened and the angel tells him that there's only one who can open it. There is only one who can accomplish its ends. It is this lion. And This is perhaps my most favorite part about these couple chapters. Because just put yourself in John's shoes if you can, in his sandals. You're in this vision. You're being shown this amazing throne room of heaven. And you're told that you're about to see one who has the appearance of a lion come forth and open these scrolls. The scrolls of the Lord God Almighty. That is amazing sight. And yet when you look over your shoulder. What do you see? You don't see a lion. Instead notice what do you see verse 6. And between the throne. And the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lion trampling over everything and conquering all. No, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain. Think about the juxtaposition of what has just happened. He's been told, John, behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, an emblem of strength and authority and power and might. You see that sight of the lion and you are immediately known and immediately know that that is a sight of majesty. And yet when he turns his eyes, what does he see? He sees a lamb slain. This gets to the heart of. Of what I think is our faith. Our faith is a paradox. It looks like something and yet it is something else. It is already and not yet. He sees a lamb standing as though it had been slain, which itself presents us with a conundrum because lambs that are killed are not often found standing up. A lamb that had been killed, that had been slit. Would be lying on the floor dead. But of course this lamb is different. And that's the point. This as John says in his own gospel. This is the lamb of God. Who takes away the sins of the world. And this lamb of God. Who is here about to open the scroll. And bring forth all of the divine decrees. Of the one who is on the throne. It presents us with this wonderful paradoxical hope of Christ. Christ on the cross. Think about Jesus on the cross. Nailed there, spikes through his hands and his feet, a spear has been struck through his side, thorns on his on his head are streaming blood down his face. By all appearances, this was defeat. Jesus was killed. Jesus died on a cross. Standing between, hanging between two thieves. There was nothing victorious about that sight of Jesus heaving and breathing his last. Again, that's why it makes sense that the apostles would be so discouraged. They had forgotten completely about any promises of resurrection. They could only see that stark image of Jesus bleeding out for them. There was nothing triumphant about that. There was nothing that they could look to and say, look at the victorious Jesus. Instead, they were ashamed of looking at this one who is now crucified as a traitor and blasphemer. And yet, this is the same image that we have here in glory. Because what looks like defeat is actually camouflaged victory. Because Jesus dying is him putting to death everything that belongs to sin and death. The only things that stayed dead at Calvary were sin and death. Jesus didn't. Three days later, he rose victorious, triumphant out of that grave. And he comes and greets his apostles with his body still bearing the marks of his crucifixion. And he comes to his apostles and he comes up to them and says, look here. Look at who I am. I'm the king of glory. I'm the one who has conquered sin, death, and hell, and the grave. Which presents us with this image here of the lamb and glory that stands as though it had been slain. It looks like defeat, but yet it is ultimate victory because that's who Jesus is. He's the ultimate victor. Who swallows up death, as it says in 1 Corinthians 15, in the victory of his cross, trampling death under his feet, which makes this lamb the ultimate emblem of God's glory. You know, it says in Revelation chapter 13, a couple of pages ahead, Revelation 13, verse 8, it says, and all who dwell on On the earth will worship it everyone whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world and the book of the lamb who was slain. In other translations that that verse is rendered that he was the lamb slain before the foundation of the world and indeed this is the whole point of it all. That the Lamb of God stands in the glory and power of resurrection. That's why he's standing. He's standing as those slain. And throughout all the centuries, throughout all the countless ages of eternity past, that Lamb of God still bears those signs of his salvation that he wrought for you and me. See, that's the wonderful image here in chapter 5. That lamb who was standing there. He appears as though slain. I always think about that scene where Thomas puts his hands into the wounds of the Lord Jesus. And how powerful that should have been. It was for all the apostles. They had already come to the conclusion that Jesus was raised from the dead. And Thomas says, I won't believe until I put my hands in his feet, in his side, in his hands. I think all the apostles were much the same as Thomas, but we just give Thomas all the blame for being the doubter. But I think about that those same wounds that Thomas touched, you and I will be able to see. When we get to glory... We're going to see a lamb standing as though it had been slain. This lamb is none other than the Lord Jesus who stands with a gash in his side and wounds in his hands which forever declare the truth that you and I are there on no part of ourselves, on no account of ourselves, we're there because of him. We've been invited into the throne room of heaven and into that place where praise and glory will forever be shouted and exalted. We are there because of Him. Because He took wounds, because He took death, because He took sin and everything that went along with it for us. Those wounds will still be noticeable, still be seen. And then I think we'll join the choir. Notice what happens at the end of chapter 5. This choir of angels begins singing a new song, as it says in verse 9, and they sing a new song saying, Worthy, worthy are you, worthy is the Lamb who to take away the scroll and open its seals for you were slain. And by your blood you ransomed people for God and from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priest to our God. And they shall reign on the earth. And then I looked and heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders the voice of many angels numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands saying with a loud voice, worthy is the lamb who was slain. To receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying, To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshiped. They're worshiping the one who is on the throne, who's ordained this Lamb to be the one through whom all of his promises come to pass. A sight of true glory, a sight of true grace, a sight of heaven, a throne and a Lamb. And forever we'll join that choir, as it says, and it is filled with myriads upon myriads, countless numbers that we can't even fathom, of voices singing praise that is due to this Lamb. It gets, I think, it reminds me of the, those famous lyrics from the hymn Amazing Grace. That when we've been there 10,000 years, bright shining as the sun, we've no less days to sing God's praise than when we'd first begun. We will not only have, we've barely scratched the surface of the praise that's due this one on the throne and the praise that's due this lamb, even after 10,000 years. You see, all of this, I think, gets to the heart of our faith. The heart of our faith comes from the confidence of the one who is on the throne and it comes from the lamb who was unafraid to take your death and mine. He willingly was obedient all the way to the cross and he stands as glory bearing the marks of that cross still on his body Which is just to say the cross is the axle around which our lives of faith revolve. It is everything. We have no faith apart from this lamb who was slain on our behalf and apart from this one who sits on the throne. John's first impression of heaven is, I would say, the way in which we ought to live our lives here and now preoccupied with the one who is on the throne and praising the lamb slain before the foundations of the world. That's faith. That's where lives of joy come from. It's easy, isn't it? To look at our surroundings and be, how does this fit in with end times? Is Putin the Antichrist? Is this person the one who is going to do some such thing that John reveals? I don't know. You know what's better than all of that? You know what's better than all of those types of predictions and forecasts? Is living in the confidence of the one who sits on heaven's throne right now. And the one who has ordained before the, the foundation of the world that you and I would be saved on account of a lamb taking our sins forever away from us. He took them for good, my friends. Therefore, we can live in these days of uncertainty, these days of struggle, these days of doubt and distress and difficulty because of two things, the throne and the lamb. They are what build up our faith. They are what give us the joy of the Lord. They are truly what make us the church. May we be a church that's preoccupied with the first impression of heaven, the throne and the lamb. Let us pray.